When the Buddha characterized his teaching as the teaching on suffering and the end of suffering, he didn't mean by that that he didn't also include the teachings on happiness, bliss, freedom, peace. But he was really very clear in pointing to the fact that true and lasting, enduring happiness or peace is only possible when the causes of suffering are uprooted from the mind. And there are many spiritual traditions on the face of the earth today, psychological traditions, shamanic traditions, uh, cultural traditions that offer tools for addressing the various kinds of physical, mental, emotional, interpersonal, societal, environmental suffering that we experience. And there are many, many practices, teachers, teachings, techniques that we could learn and perfect and use to great benefit in our life. This that we have been doing here for the past six days is just one of those practices, one of those traditions, one of those tools for addressing the stressful conditions that cause us suffering. The Buddha characterized his realization as the Four Noble Truths. The truth of dukkha, or suffering, caused by craving. There is an end to it by developing the Noble Eightfold Path. And it is this path that we have been developing through our practice here. As I mentioned earlier, this path is really divided into three trainings. The first training is a training in sila, or living in harmony, whereby we purify our speech and behavior, allowing us to act compassionately towards ourselves and others in our life, and lay the foundation for harmony in our interpersonal relationships, which we know is the source of a tremendous amount of suffering. And by committing ourselves to and practicing care and consideration in our speaking and acting in relationship to others, we restrain ourselves from acting on the most harmful impulses that arise in our mind. The grossest forms of suffering that arise in our mind that we would just, you know, we impulsively act out saying things and doing things get 
corralled and contained and subdued, suppressed, held back, <coughs> let go by our commitment to and practice of right speech and right action. Nevertheless, our mind can still boil and burn with obsessive, compulsive, addictive mental states and habits that cause us a tremendous amount of suffering. And for this, the Buddha, again, taught this that we have been doing, this practice of samadhi, or purifying the mind of its torments. That which torments the mind, our attachment and fear and desire and jealousy and envy and sleepiness and dullness and restlessness and confusion and bewilderment and all of that. And as we purify our mind, even temporarily, of these obsessive torments, we get a taste of the happiness of uh, tranquility, of just being calmer in our mind, in our body, just not being so reactive, being a little secluded from our impulsive reactions. And that, as we already know, is a great relief. It gives us a little space before we react. And so this tranquility is the source of, again, a lessening of our suffering. Nevertheless, conditions change internal conditions, external conditions, and we never really know what we're going to be faced with next. And so the Buddha understood that tranquility alone is not sufficient for facing every situation. And really to ensure that we will not be tormented by our reactions or any external conditions, we really need to uproot from our mind the tendency, even, towards any of these tormenting mental states. And to uproot from the mind even a tendency, not just to suppress it, not just to restrain from acting it out, but to uproot it requires a more powerful practice. And for this, the Buddha understood that we need to purify our understanding of the way things are. Not just purify our speech and behavior, not just purify our mind so that it can see clearly, but we need to purify our understanding so that it is the understanding which protects us from misunderstanding that leads to suffering. Well, this practice to purify (laughs) our understanding is Vipassana. There has been, since the time of the Buddha, a dialogue between those who would prefer to suppress 
the torments of the mind and those who would prefer to uproot them. And I say there's been a dialogue because, and it continues to this day, so we're probably not going to answer it tonight, but I'm going to address it. But what is the role of concentration or samadhi or jhana or absorption or tranquility in the spiritual path, in the awakening to the truth? What's its role? What's its relationship to insight? What do jhanas have to do with knowledge, if anything? Or what's the relationship between them? Remember I mentioned in my previous talk that in the mindfulness discourse, the Buddha said it is mindfulness that if aroused in every moment will free you from pain, suffering, torments of all kinds and uh, liberate your mind. It's mindfulness. Mindfulness of your daily activities, mindfulness of your mind, mindfulness of your deepest understanding. So tonight I want to speak about the path of practice in developing samadhi, the progressive tranquilizing of the mind, if you will, which gives us just that much more insulation from reacting badly to stressful conditions in life. And the understanding that grow through Vipassana practice. And I just want to kind of, kind of not really compare them, but just kind of line them up so that tranquility can be a degree of tranquility or the, the development of the mind at different stages of tranquility can reveal understandings at different stages of insight. That's how I want to put it. So that when we talk about the different levels of absorption of the mind, degrees of tranquility, first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, there are equivalent vipassana insights, knowledge to be gained when the mind is at that level of concentration. So that if you develop first jhana and you turn your attention then to notice your experience from a Vipassana perspective, you will gain certain liberating knowledge. If you're able to develop your mind to a second jhana or a greater degree of tranquility, and then turn your mind to notice the mental-physical continuum from a Vipassana perspective, you will gain a more refined, more liberating insight knowledge, and so on. So I want to just kind of lay out the paths in a kind of a side-by-side way so that you can begin to see what your work here this week has made possible or has prepared you for seeing in your Vipassana practice. Because 
tranquility is in and of itself a great gift. And samadhi practice has its own benefit and reward just in experiencing that tranquility. But it has a further potential, and that is to support the refinement of your understanding, the purification of your understanding through Vipassana practice. We live in the world of concepts. We believe we're here on a retreat. Three teachers, 45 students at a retreat center in Central California, United States, 21st century. That is all concept. Teacher, students are concepts. Retreat is concept. And yet, these concepts are very useful. You know, we, we need them. We live with them. And they provide a lot of understanding. However, the freedom that Vipassana points to is a freedom beyond concept that is beneath our experience of concepts. And so it is mindfulness, it is the job of mindfulness to get us beneath our personality, our social connection, our mm, consensual reality, if you will. When we first start mindfulness practice in a meditative way, whether we're developing tranquility or insight, one of the first things we discover in our practice, whether we're trying to observe the breath or the belly or practice metta or anything else, is we get in touch with our internal monologue. And it is the little chatter in the mind that says, here I am, a yogi on retreat, day number six. How am I doing practicing this? Practicing this concentration is kind of hard, but I had a good sitting yesterday. Maybe I'll have another good one today. Last talk of the evening. Tomorrow we go home. Yay, good. You know, and we've all got this little narrator in there just kind of ranting on about, well, just narrating our life. Some of us really like our internal monologue and some of us really <laughs> have a challenge with it. But nevertheless, it is the task of mindfulness to uh, stop the monologue, to get beneath it, to, to bring us out of this world, this, this story that we're living. We say that it is the task of mindfulness to uh, cut through the illusions or the delusions. And one of the painful experiences of that is as we pay attention to our internal monologue and we start to see through all of its constructions and all of its grandiosity and all of our self-referential, aren't I so-and-so, and aren't I good, and no, 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 you know, we get very disillusioned with ourself. We get disenchanted. And it is the task of mindfulness to do that, to really see through your story, 
and to put you on earth, really, seeing things, living things as they really are. And it, it is, it's a tremendously disillusioning, disenchanting process. Because, you know, you know, we find out that the body is just full of agony and pain, and we find out the mind is just full of restlessness and irritation and unfulfillable desires and fantasies and planning. And it's like, that's not pleasant. But if anybody asks you, do you like your life? Before retreat, we like our life. We, you know, we're doing what we can, and it's, it's, you know, we're trying to make it as best we can. And after a few days of retreat, we have a different opinion. Sometimes it's like it's a mess. But how do we come to a tranquil or a balanced understanding of what is going on, so that we're not suffering with that? In order to develop vipassana, we have to see each moment of our experience, the mind and the body as it truly is. To see beneath the illusions, the concepts. And to get in touch with what is called the sabhava. The sabhava is the unique taste, flavor of each moment's experience. So that when you're paying attention to the breath, you actually feel that breath. You don't just have a picture of your nose and your upper lip in your mind. You don't just kind of know that you're breathing in and out. But you actually feel the experience of breathing in and breathing out. The pixels of sensation, the tightness, heat, coolness, tickling, tringling, whatever it is, in order to cut through that. Because when you see the breath as it truly is experienced, at the sub-bhava level, at, the, at this pixelated, as a pixelated process, you begin to see that there really is no nose. Or there really is no breath. There's just a sequence of sensations. Just kind of... And then there's another one. And there's another one. And when you go walking outside and you pay attention really closely to you're lifting, you're moving, you're placing. There's no foot, there's no leg, there's no stepping. There's just a rapid sequence of pixelated sensations. It is this level of attention which is needed to cut through the illusions that we have about ourselves. And in seeing at that depth into our experience, we begin to see that all of these little pixels of sensation are impermanent. And that is not insignificant. Impermanence will uproot your misbeliefs about yourself, who you are, where you're going, how you're going to get there. And it's important to do that, to begin to uproot this misunderstanding we have of ourselves. When we see the sabhava, and we begin to see that it is impermanent, we can then begin to understand that everything that arises in our experience passes away. Everything. Every thought, every sensation, every feeling, every plan, every relationship, every, everything that arises in our experience passes away. Which of those temporary appearances 
that appears in your mind is going to provide you lasting happiness and peace. None. They cannot. They don't last. That is a hard knowledge to come by. I can tell you, and you may understand it, but to live it is very, very difficult. You have to live with that fact that nothing that you're experiencing can provide you happiness, an enduring, stable happiness. Well, this is, this is a radical understanding. This is a radical re-understanding. This, is this isn't what we've been taught or even what we believe or even how we live our life. But it's true. So how do we gain this knowledge in a way that isn't just kind of overwhelming and oppressive and scares the hell out of us? How do we grow into this understanding so that we can make the changes in our life that is going to allow us to live at ease with the way things are? Okay. So we're developing mindfulness. We're paying attention to the present moment, whether we're developing samadhi or vipassana. We are opening to our internal monologue. And in samatha practice, or concentration practice like this, we don't pay attention to it. We don't really care about it. All we want to do is go back to our object. In this case, the nostrils. Reconnect once again at a subtler level, at a more continuous level, with what is going on there. Just feeling the in-breath, feeling the out-breath. And in that process of strong intention, clear connection, prolonged sustaining, we keep out of our mind the internal monologue. The story just doesn't get in. And with some continuity to that persistent effort, the mind can escape the internal monologue. All the joys, all the sorrows, all the fears, all the unhappiness, depression, whatever, can escape. Because it is just present with something as simple and as continuous as the breath. It is then said that one may enter uh, a concentrated state called jhana. And jhana is defined this way, free from sense desires, no longing, no wanting, no, and improper mental contents, the hindrances, he or she enters and remains in the first jhana, a subtle, exalted state of joy and happiness, born of seclusion from the hindrances, with applied and sustained application of mind. Well, so what is jhana? Jhana is, as it says here, you're free from sense desires. You're free from the hindrances. No hindrances. Then you enter and you remain in an exalted but subtle state that is accompanied by joy and bliss, or piti and sukha, and born of seclusion from the hindrances, and it has with it vitaka and vichara. 
So, Vitaka, Vichara, no hindrances, uh, with Piti and Sukha, exalted. So, when the hindrances are aside, the jhana factors are developed, and there is a turning of the mind, or a transition in the mind, to exaltedness, that's jhana. That's all it says about it in the text. No hindrances, turning of the mind, piti and sukha arise. The initial moment of such a turning of the mind may be very brief, but it is a very powerful, brief moment. It is said that the ability to enter an, ex- an absorption or a jhana is so powerful that it, it is kind of like preeminent among moments of your life. And if you still have that capacity at the time of death to enter jhana, it will be the determinant of your rebirth condition. Uh, that's, that's kind of down the road a ways, but you know, if you're really concerned about where you're going in this life or next, you might want to uh, understand that your ticket to some other places is jhana. So, when it says that there are no hindrances, that there's we talk and we chara, it means that the continuity of Vitaka and Chara is smooth. Of course it's effortful, it is intentional, that's the nature of Vitaka and Chara, but there are no gaps. And that the body, because of the absence of any of the hindrances, is very energized. Continuous flow, which actually becomes quite easy. Now the piti that arises in first jhana is... Mm, not very dramatic, it isn't at its peak yet, but it does have uh, a certain um, pleasant quality in the body and in the mind. The mind is happy, the body is pleasant. There's sometimes movement and jerking and swaying and, you know, kind of hyperextended spine and stuff like that. But there is more than that physical stuff, there's a sense of specialness. Some people describe it as a sense of being in the presence of the divine. This is part of that exaltedness, that exalted state of mind. The happy comfort of mind and body, the, the sukha, is mostly experienced as everything's okay. It's just really, really okay. Sometimes it's felt throughout the body as just kind of a homogenous buzz or a homogenous tingling that is uh, subtly pleasant. And the one-pointedness, or the ekagata, is experienced as a feeling of being very grounded, very stable, unwavering, really. Now, with that description of first jhana, and all of those mm, exalted and ecstatic, and you would think it'd be really hard to miss. It's not. It's really easy to miss. I remember when I first started practicing jhana practice. I'd been practicing Vipassana in Burma for, I don't know, 18 months or so. And Upandita wanted me to try jhana practice. And, 
you know, being used to so much effort in Vipassana practice and so much <laughs> grinding away, jhana practice was very subtle. And the mind is alive. It's a delicate thing. And if you kind of beat on it, you don't, it doesn't respond. It doesn't tell you anything. You have to really be gentle. And when you are, then you can see, you can pick up the subtlety of the mind just relaxing into and opening and, and elevating, if you will, into these states. As I mentioned, the actual moment of experiencing jhana may be very brief, but just as when you're angry, it conditions a certain feeling in the body, a tight, contracted, hot, heavy, or when you fall in love, you feel light and open and kind of buzzy and joyful. When you attain a jhana, it also conditions a very profound, significant feeling in the body, which may linger far beyond the moment of, of jhana. For some people, it lasts minutes, sometimes hours. For some people, days that there can be this feeling in the body of like, something happened. And you can be walking around a little bit, not your usual self, just from the development of, of these jhanas. It's also said that because the mind is so pure when you're practicing jhanas or when you attain jhanas, that the materiality that is born of that state of mind is very healthy. And it's not unusual for people who practice jhanas to, um, I won't say heal themselves, but in many instances to be relieved of the symptoms that they may have been suffering from. I don't want to get this kind of like a, a, health, a health thing, and that's really not the purpose of it. But because the mind is so pure, the material that's born of it is also very healthy. So when the five jhana factors are present, the samadhi, or the jhana, is like that. If you're practicing vipassana, and all of the jhana factors are present, again, the hindrances would not be present. There would be an intentional and effortful connecting and sustaining. But rather than merely being with the breath, in vipassana practice, as you know, we open our attention to the whole field of experience. Everything that's going on in the body, in the mind. And so you may be aware of an in-breath, a thought, a sensation, a sound, the out-breath, a feeling, a memory, a thought, an in-breath, another sensation, an ache, a judgment of that, a sound, an out-breath. And yet, when we talk and we chara our developed and smooth, the mind can stay with each one of those experiences as it happens. Without struggling to keep up, without predicting where it's going, the mind just knows. Well, imagine that. You're sitting here, and in the course of a few seconds, the mind is knowing just dozens of things. It's just going ding, 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 like a pinball machine. You know, just ding, 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 ding. Do you, would you feel tranquil? 
you wouldn't feel tranquil. You'd feel like you were overwhelmed with being overstimulated. And so the experience of vipassana, and this is important to say and for you to begin to understand, the experience of good vipassana jhana is completely unlike samatha jhana. Samatha jhana is really chilled. You're really still. It's pleasant. It's enjoyable. You have a feeling of being very stable. But in vipassana jhana, you don't feel that at all. You feel like it's just kind of like your mind is racing, but you're aware of it all. And in fact, there can be a tremendous amount of unpleasant sensation in the body. This first vipassana jhana, or the the vipassana knowledge that is equivalent to a first jhana, we call it first vipassana jhana, considerable painful feelings that do not disappear easily. They linger, need to be noted dozens of times sometimes before they'll disappear. Also, there's usually a lot of thinking where the mind just is on long, rambling trains of thought, particularly about the Dharma. The mind just loves to think about how impermanent things are and what that means to us, how dukkha things are and what that means to us, how anatta things are or how impersonal things are and what that means to us. And there's a lot of personal history review. There's a lot of future planning. There's just a tremendous amount of agitated thinking. Would you think that was good practice? Most of us do not. We think that's terrible practice. But nevertheless, when the vitaka and vichara are fully developed and mature, we will see all of those thoughts, all of those judgments, all of those sensations, pleasant or unpleasant. We'll see every time we have to make another effort. We'll see every time we have a judgment. We'll see every wandering mind. But that's the nature of no hindrances. When you're not hindered, you see things clearly, and what you see is this, just this unfolding of the mind and body due to conditions. Actually, we call this one of the rolling up the mat stage of practice. Because if you don't have a teacher here, and this is what you're experiencing, you're going to roll up your mat and go home. You just say, forget it, I'm not doing this anymore. This isn't what I expected. This isn't what I signed on for. I'm out of here. And so this is one of the first places where you actually need somebody to kind of hold your hand and encourage you and say, actually, your practice is pretty good. Just keep noting what you can. This is the beginning when uh, the mind begins to open up to the three characteristics, anicca, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, anatta, the impersonality. And even though now we've heard this, we've heard of these three characteristics and we have some understanding of them, when we get right down to it, you know, it's pretty unsatisfying. It's pretty changeable. It's pretty impersonal, all that's going on. And when, for example, when the mind is opening to the truth of dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature of experience, it's either painful or you you feel vulnerable or it's oppressive, it causes you to feel insecure. This is a truth. But when your mind is opening to that, it's not only the experience that is unsatisfying, but your sense of yourself is unsatisfying, your sense of practice is unsatisfying, your sense of your 
your teachers is very unsatisfying. Your sense of other yogis, that's also unsatisfying. Your job is unsatisfying. Your relationship's unsatisfying. Your financial condition is unsatisfying. Everything's unsatisfying. Not because it's really changed since you've been on retreat, but because your understanding of the truth of dukkha is improving, increasing. Now imagine that you felt so unsatisfied with everything in your life, including the practice that you were doing right then, and yourself. How can you continue practice? Why are you going to feel like, oh, this is great. I really love the Vipassana practice. This is good. I'm going to just hang in here for another minute. <laughs> you don't. That's why you need a teacher. You need a teacher to help, to help you understand what it is that you're actually seeing. Your understanding of the truth of dukkha is increasing. So if you can, persist, persevere, be encouraged, keep connecting and sustaining with whatever comes up, you will progress, just like in samatha practice, to the second jhana. In samatha practice, in spite of all that ecstasy and that bliss and that stability and the clarity of the being with the breath and all that, in order to progress to second jhana, you have to let go of first jhana. And the way to do that is to indulge in it. I mean, I, I, I would never tell you that in Vipassana practice, but in jhana practice, you actually have to kind of let it be there and experience it, but not exclusively. You have to stay with the breath. If you want to go into second jhana or progress towards second jhana, you have to stay on the breath even more continuously, more refined, more, more subtly. But in doing that, you can't do it at the expense of your piti and your sukha and your kekata, ekagata. In fact, you just kind of hang out there with the experience of first jhana and keep going with the breath. And in time, the continuity or the strength of the continuity may become so smooth that really we could say that vitaka and vichara are no longer happening. It's just like the momentum of the mind is so smooth that they fall away, so to speak. When that happens, the mind may again go through a transition to attain second jhana. Second jhana is another exalted state of mind, of course free of the hindrances, but it's also now free of vitaka and vichara. You just have piti, sukha, and nekagata. Now, vitaka and vichara, as you know from your own practice already, is very intentional, very effortful. You really just gotta, you just gotta keep hounding yourself to connect and sustain and connect and sustain and connect and sustain. But imagine that it's so smooth you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to connect and sustain. It's just happening. Wow. Smooth. Now, the piti and the sukha and the ekagata are not hidden behind the activity and the noise, so to speak, the static of vitaka vichara. And so, and your mind is also more collected, more powerful. So now, piti and sukha really become strong, or they become more apparent and much more dramatic. Now you get ecstatic bliss. I mean, the ecstasy is, you know, pass out ecstasy. Again, the turn to enter jhana may be noticed, or it may not, maybe a very brief moment. The body feels very light. Sometimes it doesn't feel like any body at all. The mind doesn't move. 
Sometimes it feels like you're floating or hovering or uh, levitating. Uh, sometimes you feel very high, like in drug high, or like rolling a, riding a roller coaster or things like that. Often, when yogis are or have experienced or are, are experiencing second jhana, they can't stop smiling. You know, they're just just enjoying it so much. They're just walking around with a big goo 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 grin on their face. But it's because the 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 ecstasy in the sukha is unsuppressible. You can't you can't contain it. It will just come out through your body, through your behavior. But actually, what's happening is the mind is actually stiller. Even though it's exciting and it's pleasant and it's blissful and it's still and stable, what is actually being tranquilized is the attention. The mind is staying still on that breath. It's not going anywhere. Even though there are experiences of bliss and joy and whatnot going by. It's the attention which is still. So in your Vipassana practice, if you can continue to connect and sustain with those really impermanent, unpleasant, unsatisfying, impersonal experiences, you can continue to stay with them. In time, again, the effort to be with them falls away. The vitaka-vichara also falls away in Vipassana practice. And so you are left with a momentum to your attention which doesn't need much effort. You don't need to push and push and try and keep the hindrances aside. It's like it's already happening. There's a lot of momentum in your mind. And so you're seeing things go by much more effortlessly. Well, this is an interesting place in in Vipassana practice because it is here where all of the spiritual goodies come into play. And these spiritual goodies are everything that you imagine is the goal and the benefit of the spiritual life. Piti, ecstasy, happiness, bliss, tranquility, understanding, clarity, insight, confidence. They all come up. Because you're not having to make the effort. There's a lot of piti and bliss, piti and sukha in your mind. And so whenever you feel a little bit confident, it gets magnified by this concentrated mind. It gets kind of injected with a little bit of joy. And you've got this extraordinary confidence that just, I can do anything. And you can, really. But not from that state. And this is when you start thinking, wow, the Dharma's great. I am going to sit every day. I'm going to go on more retreats. I'm going to get my mother and father to practice. <laughs> Boy, this is so good. Aren't those, te- those teachers are great. <laughs> well, of course, that's, I mean, that's just inflated confidence. But it comes, and you'll believe it. When it comes, you'll believe it. You'll think, I've got it. <laughs> I've got it. You know, this is the way it's going to be forever. It's not. <laughs> but we don't know that at the time. But not only is it confidence, your clarity. It's like you can see things so pristinely, so clear, so... It's like nothing escapes your attention. Every split second can be known with utter clarity. 
without any effort. And you think, wow, this is amazing. This is the way it's going to be forever. Yippee. It's not. But we think so. And we think, I'm really doing good. This is happening to me. I bet there's nobody else in the room that experiences this. <laughs> and these thoughts come. Guarantee. You know. Or we, we take pride in it. It's like, ah, I can hardly wait to tell somebody who will recognize what it is that I've done. So these, these um, spiritual goodies are called, in Vipassana practice, pseudo-nibbana. You think it's the goal, but it's not. And because you think it's the goal, you get attached to it. And when you're attached to any of these things, you're riding high, you really love it, you really think you're doing good, and you won't let go. But until you let go, you won't progress. So it is a really delicate place in practice, again, where most people need a teacher, to gently help them down off their highly elevated sense of themselves and get them back to earth, just noting these spiritual goodies is just other momentary pixels of impersonal, impermanent, unsatisfying experience. What a letdown. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with piti or sukha or confidence or clarity or equanimity or insight. There's nothing wrong with them if you're not attached to them. But when, as long as you're attached to them, you cannot progress. Well, this is a shock to most people. Most people think, this is the goal. This is what I'm practicing for. This is what I've always wanted. Feeling confident and clear and calm and open and understanding and loving. Loving, my God. It's just like, wow. In jhana practice, fine. Indulge in it. In Vipassana practice, the more you indulge, the slower you go. And so you need to note them. Just like you would note knee pain, or you'd note the breath, or you'd note anything else. You just see it as it is. And if you persist in just naming it, seeing it as it is, without any story about it, without weaving it into your personal monologue, and that's really what it means, without weaving these experiences into your sense of yourself, not taking any gratification from them. You can still experience them. You just don't have to claim them. When you can do that, then you'll continue to progress. And if you continue to progress, you will come upon third Vipassana jhana. Now, third jhana in samatha practice, now you remember you're having a lot of piti. Piti is just kind of taking over. In order to progress beyond second samatha jhana, you again have to, you have to let go. The path of purification is all about letting go. Letting go of your indulgence in ecstasy. How do you do that? Well, pay attention to your breath. If you can stay, in spite of feeling 
all this ecstasy, if you can stay connected to the breath, if you can even find it and stay connected to breath, you can go beyond ecstasy. And in time, enter, come upon what is called third jhana. Third jhana in samatha practice, as we've been doing here, there's no vitaka vichara, there's no piti. There's just sukha and ekagata. Now, what is that? Sukha is happy comfort of mind and body. Ekagata is stillness. That's it. That's what you experience. Stillness. Pleasantly. That's pretty good. What you have come to see is that this stillness, or this pleasant stillness and stability, is much nicer than ecstasy. Ecstasy is great, but sukha, bliss, is even better. So you begin to get the picture, you know, what the progression of increasing tranquility is. Sublimely subtle, pleasant mind and body, extraordinary feeling of confidence and well-being. Everything is absolutely okay. Third jhana. Third jhana is characterized by okayness. It's just okay. It is said in the text that the third jhana is the highest possible bliss, meaning it's the most refined bliss that you can experience. There's actually a lot of equanimity in it, but because the bliss is so strong, we don't actually recognize the equanimity. So too in Vipassana practice, if you continue noting the pseudo-nibbanas, those, those spiritual goodies, you can move on to enter what is called third Vipassana jhana. You can go beyond your kind of attachment to spiritual goodies. Third Vipassana jhana. Now remember, Vitaka Vichara is gone, joy is gone. So when joy is gone from your Vipassana practice, remember how you had a lot of dukkha, a lot of understanding of dukkha, then you had all your spiritual goodies. Now you've kind of left that and you enter what is called the dukkha jnanas. This is an area of practice in your mind where you have to perfect your knowledge of dukkha. Now remember what dukkha is. It's unsatisfactoriness. Even with all the unsatisfactoriness that you've experienced, you still don't know it fully. And so the mind is going to put you through some, or your practice is going to put you through some challenging hoops to really perfect your not to really grok, to really open to what the Buddha was pointing to when he said, dukkha, dukkha satcha, the truth of dukkha. To really see clearly in your life what the truth of dukkha is. This is the major rolling up the mat stage. Partly because the speed of noting, the speed of your recognition of mindful moments is so fast that you have no time to construct a sense of self. Objects are flying by, but you see them really clearly. But uh, what you see as much as the objects is that this is just an impersonal process happening. And 
your sense of yourself doesn't have time to form. That's very unsatisfying. Very unsatisfying. It's so unsatisfying, you don't want to see it. This is, you really need a teacher here. I don't, I don't like to keep emphasizing it, but it's true. You can't negotiate this place without a teacher. You will think this is going backwards. After all of those spiritual goodies, all that confidence, all that clarity, all that bliss and whatnot, understanding, to come upon this stage that is so unsatisfying, you'll think you've gone backwards. <coughs> Everybody does. But it's not true. It's actually the next understanding that has to be matured. We could say that samatha practice is a progressive appreciation of tranquility. Vipassana practice is a progressive recognition of dukkha. Vipassana gets you close to dukkha. Samatha gets you close to sukha. So we don't want to mistake the samatha path for the vipassana path. We don't want to mistake the sukha of samatha as being somehow better than or uh, somehow preferable to the dukkha of vipassana. If, in spite of this dukkha, this clarity of dukkha, you continue to persist and you continue to recognize or note what it is that you are experiencing, both in samatha and in vipassana, you can progress to fourth jhana. Fourth jhana is, again, uh, a letting go. In order to leave third jhana and progress to fourth jhana, you have to let go of sukha. Now, here's bliss. You've got to let go of bliss. When you let go of bliss, what's left? Single-pointedness. But with single-pointedness, without bliss, you can finally see equanimity. You can actually see how non-reactive the mind is. So fourth jhana has two, qual- two, two, two mental factors. Single-pointedness of mind, ekagata, and equanimity. So now you're just resting in equanimity. The experience of equanimity is very, very subtle. The body does not move. If you think you have a body, if you can even find a body, it does not move. In fact, you don't breathe. Or you can't find any experience of the breath to pay attention to. Nevertheless, you can still stay in that state for a period of time. Extremely, um, you don't feel light and ecstatic with piti. You don't feel okay or bliss with sukha. You don't even feel grounded with ekagata. You just feel there. This is the way it is. (coughs) Just like that. No bliss, no excitement, no depression, no heaviness, no body. Or very subtle, I should say. The mind is very clear, translucent. There's a quality of just so-ness about it all. And you see that the mind is not reacting to anything. We could say it's being really sober in a good way. If you can persist in your noting in Vipassana practice through that mm, 
really unpleasant rolling up your mat stage, you again would get to fourth Vipassana jhana, which is also equanimity. Equanimity in uh, Vipassana is, of course, you are seeing everything go by. Mental and physical phenomena going by without reacting. Of course, it's going by very, very rapidly. And yet the feeling is one of being untouched. Not insulated like in samatha equanimity, but you're really fully in touch with, but not affected by, not reacting to. And so you're seeing the conditions of your life, mental and physical, as they are, without without reactivity. And in that, there's clear knowing of dukkha, of anicca, and anatta. You see in each moment, this is unsatisfying. You see that it is impermanent. You see that it is impersonal. And that's okay. The mind is unperturbed by this knowledge. Your knowledge of the way things are has been refined. It's true. This is the way it is. And when the mind can find that balanced relationship to the way things really are, what can disturb you? What can disturb you? If you see, really, the way things are, and you're balanced, nothing can disturb you. It doesn't matter what comes into your mind, or what comes into your body, or what comes into your environment. It doesn't bother you. It's not that you're insulated from it. You're seeing it fully, clearly, just like it is. But your understanding is such that you're not relying on it for your happiness. The understanding of anicca, anatta, and dukkha is the foundation for your happiness. Not the experience that you're having of any particular thing. Well, this is a doorway to peace. When one establishes that non-reactive relationship to all phenomena, the mind is at uh, a tremendously restful state. And in that restful state, the mind can find the way to the unconditioned. Find the way to Nibbana. Fall into the unconditioned that is beyond this mind and this body. But only from that place of non-reactivity. Not because you don't like it, not because you get some judgment, not because you want it, but because you don't particularly want it. You're not reactive. You're not looking for it. Then the mind can fall into it. And it is this falling into the unconditioned which permanently changes the stream of consciousness, which uproots from the mind the source of suffering. And over progressive... uh, development of equanimity and progressively uprooting these torments from the mind, we become free. Well, I promised Sally I wouldn't go over an hour. I still have dozens of pages. So, I'm glad I made that promise. I would have had to talk some more. So, I wanted to lay out a little bit just how 
the mind unfolds in practicing samatha, how the mind unfolds practicing vipassana, so that you see that they're not... I mean, they are different. They both lead to a reduction of suffering. One, temporarily, for as long as you sustain that practice. The other, more permanently, to the degree that you uproot the source of suffering from your mind. The Buddha taught them both. They support one another. Your practice here is good for what it is. And it's also good for supporting your Vipassana practice. So let's sit for a minute and see if we can find some tranquility there. Such a precious human body, difficult to rediscover. Such precious pain, not difficult to discover. Such an old story is by now a familiar joke. You and I know the facts and the case history. We have a mutual understanding of each other which has never been sold or bought by anyone. Our mutual understanding keeps the thread of sanity. Sometimes the thread is electrified. Sometimes it's smeared with honey and butter. Nevertheless, we have no regrets. Since I am here, seemingly you are here too, let us practice. Sitting is a jewel that ornaments our precious life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.